Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back, everybody. This week, Riley is on vacation. It's spring break for Riley. He's not with me. I have in his place Shiloh Logan as a guest co-host. Welcome to the show, Shiloh. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you with us again, or with me at least. Thanks for coming on. And today, with Shiloh back, we're going to talk about another Beatitude. This is something we've done in the past. We've gone into some of the Beatitudes. This time, it's meekness. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when we were talking before and you're like, hey, what would you like to talk on? I'm like, well... Let's talk about the Beatitudes because we haven't uh, we haven't talked about that enough. <laughs> so I'm excited. The, the meekness is one of my favorite Beatitudes, and so it'll be it'll be a great discussion. Yeah, what a surprise! Shiloh wants to talk about the Beatitudes. I love it. <laughs> what does meekness mean to you? Actually, before we go into what is meekness, we should probably put it in context, right? This is the third Beatitude. Yeah. So meekness is a fantastic discussion because, I mean, just in the broader discussion of the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes are these, typically what we see is like these seven virtues. And with this eighth Beatitude about being persecuted, everyone's like, well, what's that about? (laughs) And so when I've read the Beatitudes before, and I was like, man, these are just like really random, sporadic virtues that are just like placed at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount thing. And, and so I had to study for a really long time to try to figure out like, what, what is going on here with these things? And we'll come to find out. And in short, the Beatitudes are really what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. The Beatitudes are the preamble. It's where it really sets the function, the purpose, the spirit, everything that the Sermon on the Mount is going to be is encapsulated and extrapolated from the Beatitudes. And so once we kind of understand what's going on there with the Beatitudes, then we begin to recognize that like the Sermon on the Mount really is just little vignettes of what the Beatitudes are. And so when Christ goes up, the, the Beatitudes are the very first thing that he talks about. So he goes up to the top of the mountain or, you know, high up anyway, symbolic of the ascension. You know, this is very much an ascension sermon to where we are going into how do we ascend into heaven? How do we ascend into the presence of God um, in in recognizing our place there with God. And, you know, when Jesus Christ comes in the Book of Mormon, he gives this same sermon at the foot of the temple. And so, you know, the temple itself is an ascension ceremony of of going through from the, the very base beginnings of transformation all the way through to the time that we are sealed in, in the upper echelons of our celestial life. So, the Beatitudes are really the basis of this whole discussion. And, and to really get to, into what the Beatitudes are, we have to realize that they're all systematic, which means that they, these Beatitudes are not random. They're not randomly chosen. They're not just 
you know, kind of <laughs> Jesus is like, hmm, these these uh, these seven uh, these seven virtues seem pretty good. Let's try these on for size. <laughs> so th- they're not they're not these uh, just randomly selected virtues, but they they are progress. They one progresses into the next, and so the first is first, and the second is second. And you can't get to the third unless you've spent time working on the first two. And once you understand the story of the Beatitudes, especially really grasping the first one, because I really think the first Beatitude is the most difficult to really grasp. That's where the majority of our time is going to be spent when we talk about the Beatitudes in particular. And that's with the poverty of spirit, because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. But for our conversation on meekness, which is the third beatitude, we just have to recognize that with the first beatitude, the poverty of spirit is really this emptying. It's an emptying of ourselves of the identities and the anxieties and the stresses and the contexts and everything that pulls us into this physical world, everything that distracts us from our relationship with God. Everything that is that, that keeps us from being completely and totally reliant on God, we have to shed ourselves of all of that. And so this poverty of spirit is a very symbolic beatitude, meaning that we get rid of all of these identities that we have to this life, and that brings us into this, this experience of being in God's kingdom. And so from that, you, if anyone has ever had an experience in their life where they have had a major shift in identity or that they've had like a loss of identity, you're going to know that there's going to be a mourning period that goes along with that. That whenever we lose identity, there, there is this, this loss that, 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 that we feel in, within ourselves because we, we gain meaning from these layers of identity. And so... That's why the second beatitude is so important, because once you've been poor in spirit and you've emptied of it, you mourn with the next beatitude. And so then Christ comes and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As if to tell us, he's like, listen, the first thing you got to do to come inside the kingdom is to lay everything out, all of your identity from without the kingdom. You've got to lay it all down. And you immediately are brought into the kingdom. But now God realizes that that letting go is going to come at a cost. And you're going to recognize that you've lost all context to the life that you were before. This is what baptism symbolizes. And that's why baptism is, as a rite and a ritual and an ordinance, has everything to do and is, is often talked about with the poverty of spirit. Because it's the destruction of the old self, and it's the reemergence of the new self. And, and it, as you and I talked before, Christopher, we know we're going to talk more about the metaphysics versus the epistemology of this discussion, which is kind of two fancy words for describing what reality is versus how we perceive it. And so we're going to find out that most of this has to do with matters of perception than of actual reality. But it's in that state, you know, the discussion of meekness needs to come in at first to that discussion. Once we've emptied ourselves from the worldly identities and we've mourned, and in that morning, Christ promises us that we're going to be comforted. And it's in that discussion that the next beatitude is as blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the beatitudes are fascinating because a lot of the times they're set, the, the blessing and the, the virtue are set up as opposites. 
So for instance, those who are complete in complete poverty inherit a kingdom. Those who are mourning are comforted. So the blessing is the, is the opposite. So that in which when you, when you stand in that blessing, the opposite occurs. And so when you are meek, it's like that's when you inherit everything, where everything becomes yours. And so we have to ask, you know, how is that even possible? And so anyway, that's where the discussion usually begins for me, is, is that with that understanding of the Beatitudes in context of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in the understanding that the Beatitudes are a, a systematic discussion from one Beatitude to the next, and that meekness, the, the discussion of meekness has to start and be understood in context of the poverty of spirit and of mourning. The ascension, the idea of the of the Beatitudes as an ascension text is something that Riley and I explored with guest Morgan Aldous, and that, that was an interesting conversation. We also talked about the idea of the ascension in the temple drama with Travis Patton in a couple of episodes, one on classical contemplation, focused on Plotinus, another one on the journey of the soul, focused on Dante. And those were both really fruitful discussions. So I can I can identify with the, the idea of the ascension, and that's an important aspect of this. When you say systematic, I remember you also saying that the the in some sense the Beatitudes, they sort of build on each other. You know, that the and again that goes along with the idea of an ascension. So I think it helps to think of it that way. You can see yourself ascending through the Beatitudes, right? Isn't that the idea? Right. Yeah, it's 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 like a ladder. And what I love about the what I love about the Beatitudes is the whole thing is structured and its rhetorical structure is built like a ladder. And so it's you know, you step your first step on the first rung, it's the second step on the second rung, and as you're climbing, you're ascending. But there, there's a criticism that comes in about this whole stairway to heaven idea. It's like, is all you have to do is just do this step and then do this step and do this step. And then all of a sudden heaven is yours and you've earned heaven. And so, the, you know, there's this criticism. And what I love about the rhetorical way that the Beatitudes are structured is that the first Beatitude of poverty of spirit and the last Beatitude of the blessed are those who are persecuted, they both receive the same blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted and blessed are those who are, have poverty of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and this is a very intentional way of writing because what it does is, is it connects the first beatitude with the last one. To kind of take this hierarchical structure and to really kind of connect the beginning and the end together to show that it's one eternal round. The, the, just as you think you've completed it, you're starting your journey all over again. And so there is, there's no real time where you can ever say, I've truly emptied, where, where you've completely emptied your entireness <laughs> of, of the world, and you're completely free of it. And so, you know, you've arrived. The Beatitudes is a journey that never ends, right? And so it's, uh, you know, as a child, I remember watching Lamb Chups play along, and there's, there's that song, this is the song that never ends. I don't know if you ever remember that, Christopher, if, or if... Uh, uh, but it's uh, it's just really <laughs> this really obnoxious song that I that I loved as a kid. Because yeah, whenever it, it, it comes up, I wish I could unremember it. It right? just comes up, and it's not even my kids <laughs> who start singing; it's me. <laughs> right, and so th- this is in the same thing. This is the journey that never ends. The Beatitudes is a story that never ends, and just as you think you get to the end of it, you begin right over the beginning, and. And so that's one of the things I love about it is, is that it's trying to help us recognize 
that there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Everyone is on equal footing. That everyone, no matter what beatitude they're working on, they've had to do work with the previous beatitudes. But just as they've kind of completed their journey on one end, they're starting back with a journey on another. And so all of us in the kingdom of heaven, we're all in this together. And so I, I love that. I love that imagery where all of a sudden it topples the pride of the world that shows that I'm ahead or you're behind or you're behind and I'm ahead or somebody, you know, we're both behind and somebody else is ahead. This is really bringing everything down to where we are all in this same thing together all of the time, which is very humbling. <laughs> it's a very humbling moment. And it's also a very comforting moment to realize that a lot of the times we have these perceptions that we need to be better than we are, or that we need to be further ahead than we are in life, or that we're behind in life, or our culture, whatever that is, our religious culture or our, our secular culture. There are so many different ways of being around us that inform us what we should be and what we should do and how we should do it and, and expectations on, on how we should be. And what the Beatitudes have really taught me is that we are just where we are and God is there with us in that moment. And it's in that, that recognition that we are just where we are and God is there with us, where I have had the most peace in my life. Because all of, you know, I, I've, I subconsciously imagine a God that is never really happy with where I'm at. It's always wanted me to be better, always wanted me to do more, always wanted me to, if I could do 100 spiritual setups, I need to do 101 the next day, right? I always need to be improving. And so we, we set this up and it's almost like a false dichotomy in that if we don't think we're improving, we're just, we're living in apathy, we're backsliding. And yet the Sermon on the Mount comes in and tells us saying, hey, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow is going to take care of the things of itself and sufficient is the evil thereof. And just take care of the things for today. Live in the present. Just deal right now with what we've got today, right? You know, one way I've thought about this is uh, on, my, on my Facebook account, on my personal Facebook account, you know, I've been on social media now for 14 years, 14, 13 years, 14 years. When did Facebook start? I started, I think I started in 2007. So it's going on 14 years um, if, it, if it isn't already. And I love the Facebook feature, the memories feature. It's the one that goes you back and lets you see what you've posted for all, all the time you've ever been on, on Facebook <laughs> since the beginning. <laughs> and, and those are the days when, when I recognize that I love seeing my learning progression. I love looking back on things that I posted like a decade ago and realizing like, wow, I, I don't believe that at all anymore. And I'm able to kind of visually see that and I see how I, I, but I remember who I was in those moments and how I was, and how I was being. And there's a lot of compassion I have to have for myself in that. And I, and I suspect that in, tw in 10, 20 years from now, I'll look back on what I'm posting today thinking, Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. but in, in that, you know, there's some things that I'm like, you know what, I don't, I'm going to record this privately, but I don't, I don't want this to be a stumbling block for someone else. And, and there are some posts that I'll take down, things that I put up before. And, and there came a time where it's like, I need to go through and like purge a lot of my Facebook of things that I don't think are helpful or things that won't help me or help others if, if these were ever brought up again. And, and so I'm like, but how do I go over 14 years of Facebook posts? 
and the task was overwhelming. It was, a, it was just a task that was too big to handle. And so finally, I, I just the thought occurred to me one day that if I go into my Facebook memories, where it just showed me the posts for that one day, I could go through and I could review all the posts and I can see all the posts just for that one day. I can deal with just the one day. And then tomorrow, I'm going to deal just with the one day. And over a, a subsequent just doing one day at a time, as time moves and as we move and as I evolve and as I grow into this new life, all of a sudden everything becomes feasible. And so I, 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 when I thought about Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount of taking the day for itself, this made a lot of sense to me. You just deal with the things for today and sit with God with what we are and what, where we're at. And, and this for me really is a, hu- is, is a really big stepping stone into the discussion of meekness because as we're going to discuss with meekness in a little bit, is meekness is really a state of being where we accept reality for what it is. And uh, yeah, that's going to be a good discussion too. Yeah, and knowing that that reality really is only in the present and that the present alone is our happiness, that the past is dead, the future isn't here yet. When it becomes, it will be the present. So really, this is all there is. Uh, the present, right? Just today, one day at a time. And I love how Jesus overturns that hierarchy, right? The idea, left and right, he's overturning the idea of hierarchies, turning things on their head. He's saying the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He does that a lot. Yeah. When you say the um, the never-ending story, well, I, I'm saying the never-ending story, you put it a different way. It reminded me of that that movie <laughs> title too. I, I yeah. thought of the stages of grief. Here we're talking about beatitude, which is really blessedness. And so it's sort of the opposite of grief, but we kind of go through the beatitudes in the same way that we go through grief. So this is maybe the the flip side of grief, right? The the the, the beatitudes, the stages of, of beatitude. How's that? Yeah, I like that a lot. And to be honest and, and in complete transparency, a lot of the initial ideas and the structure that uh, that I borrow from heavily in, with the Beatitudes is from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote a book on the Beatitudes. He was a he was an old Christian author, uh, the late 1800s, first 1900s, I believe, is, was his time frame. And, and and he gives us a lot of really great uh, stories and, and analogies and being able to talk about the Beatitudes this way. He gives a story, and anyway, I pulled open the book just to read from the story. I thought it was a great story because it really does show how meekness is this quality of accepting the world for what it is. Shiloh, you, you know, mentioned it's kind of a, you mentioned that you actually you had to study this a lot. I know that you actually read quite a number of books on the Beatitudes before you really settled on Spurgeon's as the most, let's say, inspirational, right? Yeah, Spurgeon was the most uh, the inspirational. I, the way that he was framing things was the closest to the original language of of most of the older scholarship that I was able to find on uh, on the semantics of you know the, the original Greek thought and and of Aramaic that Christ would have spoken in. You know, there, there's you know I've collected at least two dozen books on the Beatitudes, if not more, and and each one of them have something unique to offer. But I I, I don't agree with Spurgeon. In, in totality and in completeness, um, he's he does emerge sometimes transactionally. So he, he sees God rather transactionally, that God's in control of things. Um, and even the story that I have pulled up here to show and to read from, there's a certain amount of transactionalism here or that God is in control. And in my personal relationship with God is, is not a God that's in control, but a God that exists co-eternally with reality. Um, 
you know, as Latter-day Saints, we don't necessarily believe in creatio ex nihilo. This is, you know, Joseph Smith's, uh, you know, famous King Follett discourse where he exerts creatio ex materia, that reality and, and matter already exist. You know, and there's, there's philosophical problems to the creatio ex nihilo doctrine. There's philosophical problems with the ex materia doctrine. Um, so it's not to say that... Uh, one or one or the other is better is better or without its problems but what i what i like about this story here is and, and i'll just i'll just go ahead and read it but he says whatever god wills the truly meek will they are of the mind of the shepherd of salisbury plain of whom a local doctor inquired what kind of weather will we have tomorrow well the plate replied the shepherd we will have the sort of weather that pleases me the doctor then asked, well, what do you mean? And the shepherd answered, the weather that pleases God always pleases me. Shepherd, said the doctor, your lot seems somewhat hard. Oh, no, sir, he replied, I don't think so, for it abounds with mercies. But you have to work very hard, do you not? Oh, yes, answered the shepherd. There is a good deal of labor, but that is better than being lazy. But don't you have to endure the many hardships? Oh, yes, sir, he said, a great many. But then I don't have as many temptations as the people who live in the midst of the towns, and I have far more time for meditating upon my God. So I am perfectly satisfied for where God has placed me as the best position that I could be in. You know, it's, it's interesting that every one of us are in a different place in our lives. We're all, we're all in a different sphere of influence, as it were. And there's a lot of different strata that, that differentiate us. But there's also this way of being that is meekness, where we stop fighting against reality of what is. And there's a certain acceptance of reality being reality. Now, the, the difficulty here, and you and I kind of talked about this before, Christopher, is that when we start coming and talking about these conversations about accepting reality for reality's sake, this is often fought back initially, and it really is kind of the initial knee-jerk reaction of the false self, where we equate that either we're moving ahead or we're backsliding into apathy. That somehow accepting reality for reality's sake is somehow accepting things as they are and then regressing into a life of apathy. There seems to be this dualistic idea that either either you're powerless at, at, uh, in, in the face of fate, or you have free will, and that there's no possibility of that there are things that are beyond your control and things that are in your control, and that those things that are beyond your control don't negate your free will when it comes to those things that are in your control. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly I mean, a very stoic way of putting that, right? And <laughs> it's one of the stoics, my, my, probably my favorite, uh, my favorite philosophy there, because it really does, you know, there are things that are in our control. There are things that are within our sphere of influence, things that we can do. And then there's a world that's not. And we can choose and use that free will to enter into whatever sphere we are. But what happens is we often then start to confuse living in the present for an anxiety of what will happen tomorrow. 
And that's what we're meaning here by accepting reality for what it is. Not that we don't work, not that we can't improve the world that we're living in, but there is a way of being where in our trying to make a better world, as it were, in recognizing where we're at, that we live with an exceptional amount of anxiety about tomorrow as based on patterns of the past. And there's a way that Christ is teaching us that we can be meek and also work without having the anxiety. And so in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us that we don't have to be anxious about this. We don't have to be anxious about life. Now, and that comes from someone, myself, who experiences anxiety, who has those moments of anxiety, who, you know, has like existential dread some mornings when they get out of, <laughs> get out of bed. And, and it's just this, this uh, overwhelmingness to, to confront the day. And, and it takes a lot of meditation sometimes to be able to just calm that down and to be able to recognize that the universe is not out to get you. And that, and that we do have a benevolent God and a loving God and a proactive God and a universe of his creation that is not out to destroy us. And we can rationally understand that and we can rationally know that, and I do, but that often doesn't fix the, the underlying emotional experience of life sometimes. Right? Yeah. And so, and so in this discussion of meekness, you know, this is a very personal discussion for me because it really has personal ramifications with my own lived experience. Yeah. You know, I, I myself deal with anxiety too. And I think a lot of it thinking in terms of the, in terms of this beatitude of meekness, a lot of it comes from a desire to somehow have, control over things that really aren't in my control. And so it's a lack of a recognition of the the nature of meekness that again is as we've suggested is my metaphysical reality. That's the way I am. Underneath that mask of false bravado there is the reality of the meekness at the core of my being and I'm failing to recognize it. And it's in that desire to have control over those things which are really not under my control that I fall into that trap of the false self when my true self is that that meek, that blessed, meek nature. Yeah. See, and that and that's always hard, isn't it? Because we we have the this idea of the true self, false self. Thomas Merton talks about this a lot, and, and I love his distinctions of it. And uh, Thomas Keating also talks quite a bit about it. Where the concept of the true self is that, th- that that's our real self. That's the, that's the self that was created in the image of God. God is what God is. And when he created us in his image, that's what we really are. And that's what God speaks to. But that the idea of the fall, whether or not this was a real metaphysical, actual human f- event, or whether or not this was a allegorical way of being able to talk about our own failed perceptions and kind of the failure of the the natural man that we have, what, what he would call the false self. The false self then begins to see the world in dualistic ways, in this either or and this uh, this good and evil paradigm. Whereas the the true self just begins to see reality as reality. And it doesn't it doesn't express the need 
to be able to start to see things in its in its opposites anymore. You know, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about you know Father Lehi talks about seeing everything by its opposites, and the need to see that. And as a as a culture, we've largely interpreted the Book of Mormon's use of seeing everything by its opposites as though they were talking about a, a real, absolute, total metaphysical distinction, almost uh, you know very Manichaean. You know, so Manichaean is this uh, an old philosophy that believed that uh, that goodness was actually a thing, and that evilness was actually a thing. Like, like there was actual physical evil element, and so this what became the Manichaeans believed that evil was a, a real, palpable physical thing, and that people were in possession of it and could be in possession of it. And, you know, there's an old philosopher, his name's uh, Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. <laughs> I, I haven't figured out who's right or wrong yet and how to pronounce yes. it. But, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and and so he fights against uh, Manichaeism, and, and he says, no, it's just evil is whatever is outside um, the living of God's will. And... Uh, this has its own problems because then at that point uh, you're like, well, why did God create a reality where he cannot be somewhere that then all of a sudden evil? Anyway, it gets to be complicated. But the the point here is that we experience this life and, and we have these experiences that we deem good and evil. And our scriptures, and because of our perception, our scriptures also take in this kind of language that there is good and there is evil. And what is not clear, though, especially in a Latter-day context, is whether or not it is really how evil exists. Like, what is our actual theology of theodicy, of, of like evil existing in reality? You know, we have the plan of salvation narrative where Lucifer was cast down and he became Satan because he, he sought to thwart the agency of man. And he had a plan to be able to, um, to make null and void the universal axiom of consequence. Which wouldn't work unless we followed it. Which would, yeah, right. And so Latter-day Saints have a, have a really different way of looking at evil than of, uh, than of a lot of other Christian denominations and, and of other religions outside of Mormonism. And that really affects in a lot of ways and, and largely unaddressed ways how we view God and how we view ourselves. Um, because we have narratives of like just keeping the commandments and God blesses us. And if we keep our commandments, then we're not evil. But if we don't keep the commandments, are we metaphysically evil or are we just mentally evil? Um, we, we really don't know. Um, we, we'd often talk about it in terms of light. You know, the light has become a topic of consideration that whenever we do what's right, we have light within us. Whenever we do, whenever we sin or we do something wrong or evil, that light is either subdued or taken away. And so is righteousness, the, is light the righteousness and is the lack of light the evil? There's no real conclusive thing that I've been able to find. And so in this discussion of coming into, coming out of dualism, as it were, and coming into a more unified perception of God, what I find is is that in the Garden of Eden myth, and you and I have talked about this before, Christopher, is that in the Garden of Eden myth, the fall, and my personal, my personal belief is I think the fall was far more epistemic than it was metaphysical, which means that it, the fall was describing an, is an allegory that's talking about man's mental perception and the fall of his mental perception into seeing things dualistically. 
And we see that because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was dualistic. It was good and evil. And before they ate of the fruit of good and evil, they were living in a state of innocence. And the whole whole point is to go back into the presence of God where we are partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, which is the love of God. And we all, you know, we've had that discussion about cherubim where we, we always think that cherubim is this entity that's supposed to keep us out of the tree from the tree of life. But we don't recognize that cherubim, plural, right? It's, uh, nor, there's what, four of them, north, south, east, and west, was, was there placed to help us come back into the tree. It was there to help purge our false self so we could come back into the tree to partake of the love of God. And so meekness here becomes a discussion of the state of being where we have given up that false self's view of the world and we only begin to see things as the true self in a state of innocence where all of a sudden we are good with reality because we have no story or expectation that reality is anything other than what reality is. And so when we act, we act from a place of strength and of power, not as a matter of reaction to the way the world is, but with the foresight and knowledge of what really is, we begin to be able to act in what really is as opposed to the knee-jerk reaction against what is not. Yeah, you know, the 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 false self, and here's a great way to identify the false self, and I got this from the Center for Action and Contemplation, something that was adapted from Richard Rohr's book, Immortal Diamond, I think. The false self is the one that gets offended. The true self is never offended. Whatever is happening that that the false self takes offense to is just part of reality. It's just what is. So if you're offended by what is, well, that's the false self. You've just identified the false self. The true self accepts what is, knowing that what is is. And so you you know your false self isn't going to say, for example, and I'm I'm thinking of I'm reminded of the work of Byron Katie. Um, she says. You know, people have come to her and doing what she calls the work, and they say, my kids are leaving their clothes on the floor. They shouldn't leave their clothes on the floor. And Byron Katie, in the most loving and understanding and compassionate way, says, and she always she always says, sweetheart, sweetheart, but they do leave their clothes on the floor. That's what kids do. Yeah, but they shouldn't. Well, but they do. And, and so she asks, are you sure they shouldn't leave their clothes on the floor? Yes. Can you be absolutely positive? And, and sometimes people still say yes. And this is the work is asking these questions, right? And eventually they have to come to the realization that they're really butting their heads up against reality. The reality that kids really do leave their clothes on the floor. And that's just the way it goes. <laughs> and <there's> just, <laughs> you, you, can, uh, you can say they shouldn't, but they do. And so, you know, the, the idea of, of duality as something that's necessary, we do get from our scriptures. And But I think the thing that we don't remember, which I think is clear, it's there too, is that that duality is to be transcended. That as you said, that we're meant to enter back into the presence of God. To return to him, to return to paradise. Back, you know, past the cherubim and the flaming sword. And that flaming sword is going to distinguish, right? It's going to distinguish between truth and error, between what's true and what's false. And in some sense, ultimately, perhaps paradoxically, getting past that 
really means coming into a place where there is no true false, right, wrong, good, bad, because that's the false, that's the false world, the fallen world, right? That is the fall. The fall is to enter into that place of duality, whereas going back into the garden means everything is one. We're one with God. As Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We are two. We always have been. We haven't failed to recognize it. In some sense, we had to fall out of fall out of unity with God, perhaps, to be able to recognize in the same way that sometimes in meditation, I have the personal experience of, of achieving in some sense, of at least getting a peek, at least a, a glimpse of that unity. And it's only when I come back out of it that I realize that I just had it. So in other words, when I'm, when I'm in that place, which is very fleeting and momentary, I don't know I'm there. It's only when I've lost it that I realize, oh, I was just there. I just had that experience. And if you try to get it back and you struggle, right, against the reality that you don't right now, you'll never get there. That's never going to get you there. You have to be, you have to be able to be okay with you're not before you'll actually have access to it again. And that's sort of the, the, the paradox of it. But that, that, that duality is meant to be transcended. We don't even have, you know, another point you, you mentioned with our discussion with Travis last time around Dante and the journey of the soul. We don't even have a hell in our theology. We have these three degrees of glory. There's no hell. There's outer darkness. And our scriptures tell us, you know, the, the number of people that will end up in outer darkness let's say, is going to be minuscule compared to the people who go to hell and, and other religious thought, right? Um, and yeah, so it, going back to the, the idea of the, the fall in the garden, you and I did have a conversation about that. I wanted to point listeners to that. That was back in in the Come Follow Me podcast back in Helaman, right? Was it Helaman 3 through 4? Yeah, it was one of the first ones of Helaman. You'd have to look into the Come Follow Me and the headings. But yeah, it was the one of the first chapters of Helaman. Yeah, when you had me on as a, a guest co-host. It's good to have you with me, by the way. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. You know, that reminds me as well of, you know, that you talked about there's no hell in our theology. And when, when Joseph Smith first talks about the three degrees of glory, uh, Brigham Young later remarked that this was such a revolutionary concept to the saints that so many of the saints ended up leaving the church because they couldn't endure a thought and a, and a, and a theology that was so lenient upon the sinner, that their idea of hell was so necessary to their construct of God that they literally needed to have a place of torment and punishment for the people who were otherized <laughs> in their view. And when they came out with this idea of the three degrees of glory and it being so enlightening for, for all of God's children to receive a, a kingdom of glory, <laughs> and they weren't going to burn in hell forever, uh, that was too much to bear. And it really goes to show this aspect of human nature of the false self about how much we... It's the false self that really sees the world as punishment. This whole concept, and it goes yeah, back. Yeah, you know, Rob. Yeah, so Rob Bell, who's the mega church pastor who 
became not a megachurch pastor because he wrote this book, Love Wins, where he takes on the idea, the evangelical idea of hell, and sort of brings it into question and in, in, under close scrutiny and ends up sort of looking maybe more like looking at it more the way we're looking at it here, right? And maybe even the way that we look at it in general in, in our religion. And he gets this, you know, from somebody tweets, farewell, Rob Bell, right? That's, that's the end. And I mean, he really, he faced a lot of opposition, the same kind of opposition that you mentioned the, the early saints had to the idea that there's no hell. And there's this, there's this need for hell, right? We need there to be a place called hell. And so it's interesting because actually last time with, uh, on the podcast with last week with, um, with Travis talking about Dante, we talked about the mercy of God in terms of creating this idea of hell, at least from Dante's point of view, right? The idea of hell was that there needs to be this place for us, the, the same way that there needs to be uh, a savior, right? This, because it, to satisfy the demands of justice, but whose demands of justice are we satisfying? That's the question, right? And I'm going to suggest that those demands are our own, our own demands for justice. Yeah, Ben and I on Come Follow Me have talked quite a bit about justice in that, in the, in the concept of justice being our concept of justice. And, and we take this back to the Cain narrative. And I don't know, I, I don't know anyone who can have a longer than a 60 minute discussion with me in private, <laughs> in private before we start talking about Cain somehow. <laughs> I can attest to that. But with Cain, I, yeah, right. <laughs> It's like, hey, let's have a conversation with Shiloh. I don't know. Are you ready to talk about Cain yet? And he's like, and I don't Beatitudes. know. We're gonna talk- the Beatitudes. <laughs> That's right. It's always going to end up with the Beatitudes or Cain somehow. But I, I do. I love Cain so. I love Cain so much. That's a really weird sentence. I love the story of Cain so much. I, I might even love Cain too. I haven't ever met Cain, so, I, so I don't love? know how that would be Why tested. Not? But when Cain, what's not to love? <laughs> when Cain was uh, was first there, he kills Abel. God come, just comes down and he's like, Cain, where's your brother? And the question I've always asked is, why is God asking questions he knows the answer to? Because God already knows what's going on. He's not, God's not there to find out things for God. God's already got it figured out. God is there for Cain. He was already there for Cain before Cain killed it. God warned Cain about the whole thing before it happened. And so once it happens, God is still there trying to reconcile with Cain, to have him speak his trauma so that he could heal Cain. I, I hear your your brother's blood cry from the ground. In other words, that life, because blood is always symbolic of life. I've heard his life. I've heard that life force come out to speak from the ground. I've heard him. I've healed him. I've, dealed with, I've dealt with him. I'm here for you. And the, th- see, the thing is, Cain never admits to what he's done. He never vocalizes his trauma. He never vocalizes the, the pain that he feels. And that becomes his curse. He's stuck with the pain and the trauma of his actions. And then he begins to say, this is more than I can bear. And the, the, he's the inventor. Cain becomes the inventor. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptural text before Cain. He's the one who says, because I killed Abel, they're going to want to kill me back. That concept of justice, of that retributive justice, of balancing the scales was not introduced by God. It was introduced by the false self, by Cain, in the Cain narrative. When God comes to the first murderer, God lets him go. We can't emphasize that point enough. 
Number one, God's not killing Cain back, and God let, literally let him go. And Cain is the one who brought up the idea of justice, that we consider justice today. And so in that whole, we have to start recognizing the, the concepts that the false self creates. And this is really, this is central to the discussion of meekness. This is the kind of stuff we have to empty out. This is the very process of repentance. You know, in the LDS Bible Dictionary, it says that repentance, the very first sentence, is that repentance is the, is to see God and ourselves and each other and the world around us with, fre- with a fresh view. We, we give up the old views of God that we've held on to. Which really makes it, you know, this year we're studying come follow church history and come follow me. And it really comes down to this point that the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ could really be synonymous with the repentance of the last days. That restoration and repentance are almost synonymous ideas there. Because, because of the restoration, what are we restoring? We are restoring the correct way of being able to see and experience God. Now, the correct way here, I, I've, I've got I've to be careful with how I say this because a lot of the times we want to frame in proscriptive ways what the correct experience is. And what I find from the stories of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are all of the ways that God has been trying to pour out his spirit on his children that they haven't quite figured out yet. And so it, it's just going, going back to meekness here. <sighs> And our stoic discussion is, is meekness really is a matter of contentment. That those who are meek, we're not, we're not quarreling with God anymore. We're not arguing with God. We're being invited into the discussion and into the conversation of who and what he is. That's what he was trying to do with Cain. And the meek, if they're really meek, they're always willing to bend. You know, that whole stiff nakedness that we hear in the Book of Mormon? The meek are always willing to bend in the situation to to be open to what reality has in store. And that doesn't mean that we become agents that are affected or you know, you know, there's things to act and things to act it upon. That doesn't mean that we simply set ourselves up as things to act upon. That kind of dichotomy of act to act upon really is a dualistic false self-perception. We are just what we are. And that true self is already humble. It's the false self and the perceptions of the false self that really pit the pride between us and God to where we no longer have a mechanism of being able to let go of the layers of that false self, those scales that Paul talks about, the scales falling from my eyes so I could see things more clearly. At first, I saw through a glass darkly, so he tries to see reality through a more clear lens. That's, that's really what the false self is. It's, it's, a, it's a layer by which we interpret reality. And the meek are the people who've begun to shed those layers to recognize what they've always already been. And in that, they live a life of a life true to reality as opposed to their expectations of it. And that's a blessed life. That's what that is. You know, and as we're recording this, we've recently read in the Doctrine and Covenants examples of, what was it, three or four people in one revelation who are told that they're under no condemnation. And this is this is as the Savior deals with each and every one of us as individuals. We are under no condemnation. What does he say to the woman caught in a, or taken in adultery? 
he says, Neither do I condemn thee, when no one else is around to condemn her, when, when he calls them out on their, let's say, hypocrisy. Um, because he says, well, who's, who's without sin? Let him cast the first stone, and they go away. So where, where are your accusers? No accusers. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And this is what we get, right, as individuals. If anything, it's as a body of Christ that we are under condemnation, right, according to section 84. But as individuals, no, we're under no condemnation. And so repentance, like justice, is really for us, not, not for God. That's for us. It's for us to come back into contact with reality, back with, hey, this is just the way things are. Reality is God is loving. God is forgiving. God is not condemning us. Who condemns us? I can tell you who condemns me, Shiloh. Um, me. First, first and foremost, me. And then others around me. Probably those closest to me. Isn't that how it works? Those closest to me are doing that. I've never felt condemned by God. Never in my experience of God have I ever ever felt that. I felt it, you know, from people close to me. I felt it even from people at church or in other religions, maybe, but not from God. Not once. I've I've felt convicted, convicted in the sense of, hey, I, you know, my my actions are out of line with the way things are. You know, God has pointed to uh, pointed me towards towards the reality of the way things are and the, re- the reality of the way things work and what's going to make me happy, what's going to uncover underneath the false self, the true self that is blessed. And I've had to bring myself back into alignment and, and I've been blessed by that, that outer shell of those commandments that point me inward to that inner shell. That has been a, that has been a huge blessing. The, that's how I see the commandments, right? They're giving me they're giving me a path to walk. They're giving me the straight and narrow path. It's the rod of iron that I can hold to so that I can walk forward in faith in the darkness and not be afraid. And they, they point me to God so that I can, that they point me to, let's say, to that target that I'm trying to hit, the one that, using the term hamartia, which is the one we translate as sin, which has so much baggage. This is a term with so much baggage. It's an archery term. Amartia means missing the mark. So it turns out, get this, Shiloh, if I'm not facing the target, I can't actually hit it. Go figure. So I turn back toward the target, turn back toward God, who I'm trying to enter back into communion with, back into paradise, back into the presence of God. And now I have a better uh, better chance at hitting that target because I'm actually facing it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I like that. As you were talking about the woman taken in adultery, that's one of that's become one of my absolute favorite stories because it illustrates so perfectly this idea of the role of the Christ archetype in juxtaposition against the Satan archetype. And Jesus does just beautiful, this beautiful uh, work in elaborating who he is with this woman and where Satan comes into this play. Because Satan... Satan is uh, evolves. The idea of Satan evolves over time to where he's this figure that everything's couched in a court of law. So when we hear about Christ being our advocate with the Father, this is a term of of being in a court of law. And when we hear about a testimony, you know, bearing testimony or bearing witness, 
again, this brings us back into an imagery of a court of law. Whenever we hear about Satan, Satan is is described specifically as the adversary, but he's a specific type of adversary in that he's the accuser. So over time, Satan has evolved over time to being basically the divine prosecuting attorney, as it were. That he's the one who accuses us of all and convicts us of all of these things about uh, supposedly about who and what we are in reality. And it's Christ who who then becomes our advocate. And a lot of the times we end up saying that Christ is our advocate to the Father, but that's not what the scriptures the scriptures say he's our advocate with the Father. The Father is on the side of Christ. And so Christ is our advocate with the Father. God is not against us. He's not there coming against us either. So when this woman is taken in the act of adultery, and I always just, I cringe because why was the woman taken? Why wasn't the man there? But the woman is brought before Christ, taken in the act of adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus, and by the lawyers, as if in a court of law, condemns her because the law says she should die. Again, the law has been established from the Cain narrative to establish this kind of man-made justice, man's sense of justice. And Christ looks at her and he says, woman, where are thine accusers? Where is Satan here? And she looks around and she says, I can't see him. Neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. In other words, don't miss the mark anymore. Don't, if you go forward, make sure you're hitting the mark. What you're doing was missing the mark. <laughs> and there's no condemnation there. It, there's no this, uh, you know, a lot of the time we talk about the gospel in terms of becoming. And, and, and I've thought about this a long time, a long time. This has been one of those things that have just kind of always sat on the back burner for me thinking about it about what does it mean to become something? And like, what's the final transition where you've finally become it? This is such a and, juicy question for a couple of philosophers to chew on, isn't it? <laughs> right? Being and becoming, oh boy. Being and becoming, right? You know, yeah, I mean, this is uh, the essence versus the, the, the existence. You know, this is, a, this is a huge philosophical discussion that goes back, and we're not going to solve this in the, in the last 15, 20 minutes Oh, we come have. on, Shiloh. Can't, can't really try. <laughs> All right, let's try. But but in this, this this way, the true self is what already already exists. Call it creatio ex nihilo, call it creatio ex materia, whatever you call it. The true self is that which is created in the image of God. Our story begins where we have already become what we are. We are made in the image of God. <sighs> Period. Full stop. That's it. I love it. That's where our story begins. So what happens before then? We're not told, but that's where it begins. Everything else after that is a perversion. And so when we think about who we really are, we are made in the image of God. Let that sink in. That's the true self. Yeah. And once we come to that place where we recognize that everything else after that is just the false self on display, it gives us a lot of power 
to getting rid of those demons in our own in our own mind that accuse us of anything. I mean, things that we accuse ourselves of daily. Man, come on. Get behind me, Satan. This is really exciting. <laughs> right. Get behind right? me, Satan. Come on. And that's and the, that's where those things come. Yeah. And you know, it's it's interesting too that we uh when we kind of start to recognize that it's the Satan archetype that we're listening to. Satan, you know, I was recently studying and Satan, uh, Lucifer, the devil have become topics, uh, topics of interest for me for a a variety of reasons, um, both personally and academically. And one of the things that I found that's very fascinating is that we treat Satan the same way that we, the Satan archetype anyway, the same way that we treat the Christ type, the archetype. And one of the ways that we do this, there's many ways that we do this, but one of the ways that we do this is through... Uh, scapegoating. And now in ancient Israel, the priest would take a goat, right? And would pronounce all the sins of Israel upon the goat, tie a ribbon around its net with a bell and send it up into the mountains. And if you ever ran across the goat, you had to run away. Nobody could kill the goat <laughs> because, you know, and, and then unless you took upon yourselves all the sins, right? And so this was the, this was the collective purging of, of the sins of the people. And so they, uh, and so this was considered the archetype of Christ because he's the one who takes our sins, right? But in the same way, Satan is also treated as the scapegoat of our sin. And you got to think about uh, the, the, uh, the Garden of Eden myth. We're always trying to pass the buck of consequence. And so when God comes down, he talks to Adam, he's like, hey, Adam, why'd you eat the fruit? He's like, I don't know. The w-. He's like, it was Eve. Yeah. <laughs> And God's like, Eve, what happened? He's like, I don't know. Satan made me do it. (laughs) And so then he goes to Satan and Satan's like, well, if you're going to accuse me for everything else has been doing around here, he's like, this has already been done everywhere else. And so Satan's even trying to pass the buck to what God was doing. (laughs) And so there's just this collective passing the buck until, you know, until God puts it on Satan. And that idea of Satan where it's like, no, this is where it stops. And so Satan becomes the scapegoat of our consequence. Satan made me do it, right? And so we scapegoat in a lot of ways. And and what that even means, I, I don't know. I haven't fully even explored that idea yet about what that even means and, and how, but there's many ways that we, we treat Satan and, and Christ in the same ways. But at the very end of the day, when I was talking, we were talking a little bit about expectations before when we were talking about living in reality and accepting reality for what it was. And there's a story, I, I think I've already told it on, on some of the, I don't know, not the contemplation, but at least over at uh, Come Follow Me, where there was this one morning where I was uh, teaching seminary, early morning seminary. And every morning as I was teaching early morning seminary, I taught for you know, four or five years. And when I would go down to teach, uh, I would always stop in the gas, well, I'd stop a lot in the gas station <laughs> next to the church. And I happened to know where the, see, a little thing about me is I love blueberry flavored baked goods. I don't like blueberries. I don't like blueberry flavoring. I don't like blueberries and anything else. I specifically like blueberry flavored baked goods, which really ends up boiling down, boiling down to, I like blueberry muffins. That's really what it boils down to. <laughs> what is it about blueberries? I, I didn't like blueberry anything. Maybe actually, maybe I was more open to something like blueberry muffins, but, but blueberries and now like green eggs and ham, I have them every morning in my cereal. Blueberries. My kids are just Do you blown love blueberries? away. Yeah, all of a sudden, I like blueberries. <laughs> That's funny. I, I haven't reached that threshold. I'll let you know when I do. Okay. 
But but I love blueberry flavored baked goods um, because what what they call blueberries and blueberry muffin they're not really blueberries, but anyway um, I I go in and I just happen to know that in this particular gas station that blueberries that, that my blueberry specific blueberry muffins that I like to eat were about seven paces north northwest from the door, and I knew how to get there I could walk it in my sleep because I often did, and so as I was going over there I, I know right where the blueberries were and the blueberry muffins and this particular morning I saw just two items over. They had a blueberry donut. Ooh. And I just about lost my mind that morning because I was not ready to make this choice. Do I keep with my blueberry muffin or do I have my blueberry donut? And I happen to know it was a hostess blueberry donut. And I happen to know that hostess makes a pretty doggone good, you know, deep fried cherry pie in a box. And so I was like, my goodness, it's a hostess donut. And I'm looking at these and it's a two pack and it looks like an old fashioned donut. And of course, everyone who knows me knows that my favorite donut is an old fashioned donut with the, with the glaze on it. And so I'm looking here, I'm like blueberry flavored baked goods and an old fashioned donut made by hostess. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I had an existential dilemma for about 10 seconds there until finally I, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get them both. So. <laughs> Of course. So I got, I, of course. And so I got them both. And uh, in those days, I was living off Monster Energy drinks. And so I got myself a Monster Energy drink. It was an orange energy drink, sugar-free, because, uh, you know, that sugar stuff's bad for you. know, it's going to kill you. So in this particular, so I head to seminary and I'm setting up. And I open up the two-pack of my, of these blueberry donuts. And I am so excited. I just, I, not a lot of things really excite me. But for whatever reason, this early in the morning, this blueberry donut... <laughs> was really excited and I bit down on that blueberry donut and the expectation that I had was that it was going to be this old-fashioned donut that was like you know that crispy outer shell with that really moist inside and kind of the the, the buttermilk flavor kind of thing and 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 what I ended up biting down on ended up I seeing on the wrapper it was a cake donut now nothing against cake donuts I just a cake donut is a chewy donut and it's like almost rubbery. And so what I was expecting versus what I ended up biting into were two entirely different things. And what I thought was going to be more of a crisp glaze ended up being more of a, like a watery glaze on top of it. And so I was, I was so disappointed in like 20 different ways with this donut. And I almost spit it out. And I, the amount of disappointment I experienced in that moment Obviously, now several years later, it made an impact because I'm still telling this story. But when I when I bit down on this donut, I was chewing it. And I'm like, "This is awful. This is like the most awful thing I've ever had." I'm like, "How? This is just just." And so I just I, I got my energy drink and I <laughs> I washed it down. And uh, you know, it was about ten minutes later, and the students hadn't shown up yet. And as, so I looked at the, the open wrapper of that blueberry donut, you know, and I'm like, "Was it really so bad?" Was it really so bad? So I went over and I bit down and I had another taste. This time, however, it still wasn't my favorite, but it was head and shoulders better than the first bite. And I was like, I can do this. I can eat both of these. So, so I ate. So I, I right then and there, I ate both donuts. And I, by the end of the second donut, I was like, this actually isn't bad. I actually kind of, I actually kind of dig this. And as I thought about it later on. I question, you know, this is the philosopher in me. I questioned the the experience of the, the the first bite versus the experience of the last one. And I'm like, what changed in five minutes? 
And what came to me was that it was all about my expectation. My expectation of what it was and of the experience that I wanted versus the reality of what the donut always already was. The donut was just the donut. It was never going to be anything other than the donut that it was, it was made to be. My experience to it, though, was layered with layers and layers and layers of expectations. And when my expectations came into conflict with reality, I experienced a sort of trauma. Now, I use trauma a little bit light, lightheartedly here, <laughs> but it was, it was a moment that my expectations of something that I really, really like completely came into con- confronted a conflict with what was. Until I started to adjust and to accept reality for what it was, and I started to realize this is actually not as bad as I thought it was. And this is, this is really where the meekness conversation comes around for me. By recognizing reality for what it is and being present with it, that is, that is getting to the heart of what meekness is. That's getting to the heart of what this, what it means to, to live in reality for what reality is. Because once you get rid of all of your stories about reality, which is what poverty of spirit is about, once we get, you know, the thing is, is we don't, we don't often live in reality epistemically. We live in our stories about reality. We create stories and constructs with expectations and meanings, and we overlay that onto reality, and then we act into the stories, and then we think it's the stories that constitute reality and not reality itself. You know, this gets into concepts about war. No country has ever, ever once, not even once, fought a war about the nature of God and over God. Not once. But nations have repeatedly, over and over and over again, gone to war over their stories and their ideas about God. That's an important distinction. It's a huge distinction, right? And meekness is the state of being that we stand in once we get rid of our stories about reality and we actually start living in reality. And this is much, much, much harder to do than we ever think it's going to be. Especially when we condemn ourselves, when we're not willing to forgive ourselves. You know, I want to go back to this because there's this idea I, I don't want I don't want people to, to walk away with the wrong impression, right? So we have this idea that we've I know you've talked about this with Riley on the podcast, on this podcast, the idea that you're already always worthy, right? There's an episode on on worth and worthiness, is it? On worth and worthiness. Yeah. So there's this idea. I remember you had a Facebook argument. This is why I'm not on Facebook anymore. Facebook arguments. Uh, You're still, you're still willing to do that. I'm not the, (laughs) right. The, the argument was uh, up against this idea that you're already always worthy. And somebody said to you, so if I rape and kill, I'm already always worthy. Wasn't it something like that? Yeah. And the answer is yes, you are metaphysically. That's who and what you are. You are created in the image of God. Now, epistemologically, you obviously don't realize who you are, or you wouldn't have done that. And that's the idea too. I've, we've compared, I think in this podcast, we've compared the 
the, let's say, the evangelical way of looking at works versus faith to the Latter-day Saint view. They seem to come, in the, on the face of it, they seem to come into conflict. But the idea of the, the evangelical idea, which I don't find anything wrong with, is that your works are a result of grace. Once you come into contact with that grace, once you are converted, then the actions that, that, you, that come out of you, right, they come out of that conversion. And that's powerful. Yeah, it really is. You know, one of the last things that I was going to bring up in our discussion, uh, Christopher, was this idea of Jesus Christ enduring the temptations. Because when we, we study about Jesus being tempted by Satan, we have to realize that he had spent 40 days in the wilderness. And there's a lot of symbolism about what, what wilderness means. But he spends 40 days in the wilderness purging and becoming poor in spirit. Jesus had to walk this path. In fact, that's what blessedness means. That makarios there, the, the Greek word that we take uh, blessedness from, it's a complicated word, but there are many scholars who've taken this to mean that it is a state of being and of blessedness, of happiness, as it were, of, of prospering, that this is what God would be doing if God were here. And Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God. That is God made flesh. And so it's literally what Jesus is doing when he is there. So when we read in Matthew 4 about Christ's temptations, it's not that Satan came tempting and Jesus was not tempted. It's that Satan came tempting and Jesus was tempted. That he experienced that that pull of looking beyond the mark and of missing the mark. And, and so the, when, when Satan is there and he takes a look and he takes Christ up and he says, look, look over all of these kingdoms of the earth. If you bow down to worship me, I'll give everything to you. One of the things we do with the, in, in the treatment of this story is we give a very Lockean, you know, from John Locke, a very Lockean point of view to Christ in that we say, well, see, Jesus, he mixed his time and labor in creating the earth, so therefore the earth was actually his property. And because the earth was his property, because he mixed his time and labor with it, he recognized that he didn't want to bow down to Satan because it was already his. And that's not, that's not a good exegesis. That's not the story here at all. What's going on is this is a beatitude conversation. Jesus had just come out of 40 days of fasting. He had been purging, and by by implication, he had been mourning for that whole time as well. He had been purging and mourning and going through that process. He he was not bringing in any food. He He was not being filled in any way. That's where the fasting portion of this. He goes into the wilderness, and the wilderness is always a place outside of civilization. And we have to realize that in the Old Testament, civilization was, was usually marked by the Cain narrative because the Old Testament begins where Cain, in, in that Cain narrative of not purging and not emptying, Cain is the one who symbolically begins civilization. It's his children that become the first artisans. It's his family that builds the first cities. It's his family that builds the first city walls. By going out into the wilderness, it's a symbolic leaving that Cain narrative of civilization, of going out into the nothingness to be able to purge yourself from the layers of identity that we are given at birth, to be able to see who and what we truly and really are. 
And so when Christ comes back into, into I don't want to say conflict, but when he comes back into a one-on-one face-to-face with the accuser, the accuser turns to Christ to challenge what he has emptied. And he looks at all the stories and the narratives, and he looks at all the power of the earth and everything that the earth has to offer. And if you accept this, I, I will make you powerful over all of the narratives of the earth. Then you will belong. Then you will have control. But Christ has emptied. And in doing so, when we truly empty, we really lose our identity of belonging anywhere. And that's a really powerful human. In fact, that's one of the central human emotions is our need to belong. That's how tribalism starts. That's how nationalism starts. That's how group identity starts. We feel we want to belong to something. And so we, 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 we crave groups to belong to. But a person who's meek and who's purged themselves from the realities of the world, the false realities, I would, I would say, stands there in their emptiness and their nothingness and then there then and only then are they prepared to receive the identity that God can show them of who and what they really are that he created in his own image and so when christ rebuked and and did not fall for the trap it's this idea that the meek are the ones who inherit the earth the earth was christ's not because he mixed his time and labor with it but because he was meek this is the moment of supreme transcendence of the Christ, right? His moment of supreme transcendence, the moment in which he himself overcomes any vestige of any possibility of, of any false self and enters fully into the true self of the Christ. And it's after this that his, his ministry begins. Right? This is, we could say, this was the, the final test, maybe. Yeah, I mean, chapter four in Matthew, when this whole temptation begins, he, he literally leaves this moment and he calls his followers from this moment. And then as soon as he gets his followers, that's immediately where chapter five begins. And in verse three is where the Beatitudes begin. And so, yeah, it, this, is, this is not to be, confu- to be confused. This all is interrelated. Christ is standing here and is being given the stories and the narratives of the world. And he inherits the earth because he's meek, because he's humble. So meekness here is a, is a type of humility. It's an emptying. It's a type of th- that oneness with the world of being able to be one with the world means that you have to be humble. You can't control the world. You also have to be forgiving of the world. You know, there, you know Richard Rohr and, and some of the, you know, these uh, Christian mystics have talked about forgiving reality. I love that. And, and this, yeah, right? it's, this, it's this weird idea that when you really sit with what this means to forgive reality, see, reality is just what reality is. But sometimes in our, from our point of view, we have to forgive reality for being what it is so that we can accept it for what it is. Not that who we are and how we view things change things and change reality, but it is a stepping stone for us to being able to accept reality for what it is. So we stand there in our connectedness, and, and that's really where con- true connection comes into play. That, that's divine connection. That's divine identity. When we've finally given up all of the identities of the world, 
Meekness is the doorway by which we then come into an acknowledgement of divine identity. Because the next beatitude after meekness, after we've been meek and we've inherited the earth, is blessed are they who shall hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this goes right back to Christ's temptation because Satan wanted to put the cart before the horse and he was like, listen, you're hungry. If you take this piece of, if you take this rock and turn it into bread, you can be filled. And Christ was like, no, this is not the filling. You know, just like the woman in the well when he's like, you know, if I drink this water, I'm going to thirst again. If I, if I eat the bread that Satan provides, I'm going to be hungry again. But what he comes to fill us with is something that we will hunger and thirst no more. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, I'm reminded of, again, thinking of the idea that that outside of duality, back in the presence of God and unity with God, that we have to accept all of reality. And that includes what uh, psychologist Carl Jung would call our, our shadow self. There is a dark side to the light chasers as one book title that stood out in my memory, a book I never read, but was some a book that was gifted to my wife, the, the dark side of the light chasers. All light chasers have a dark side. That's a part of us. And when we accept that, and when we integrate that, and, and again, integrating that, the, the vocabulary, integrating it implies this bringing together, the coming together of the, the, the good and the bad, right? Because we think of the of the dark side is bad, of the of the dark, uh, the false self is bad, right? Bringing those two together into into unity so it transcends that duality, and it's important for us to be able to do that. To accept, you know, I, I've been reading a couple of books of Elizabeth Gilbert's over the last couple of days, and she mentions this idea of fear and. The idea that, that that's not something you're going to get rid of, but that you say, listen, we're going to go on a car trip here, and I'm coming, and creativity is coming, in particular in her book on creativity, and fear, you can come too, but you don't get to drive. You, you can have a voice, but you don't get to vote. You especially don't get to drive. But you're included. You're part of the family. We're not going to pretend in this sense of duality that you're not part of the of the entirety of the whole that is one. That's what we're looking for, is that sense of wholeness, of unity, and within ourselves and with God. Yeah, I love that. Well, Shiloh, is there anything that you want to add in closing here? No, I I think I came with everything I'd prepared to to talk about and then some. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Well, may we transcend the false self in our concept of reality and come into the blessedness of the reality of reality itself, the reality of our true self, the meekness of our true self that's already always there. Amen. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Shiloh Logan. Have a great week.